Greetings, friends. My name is Jessa McLean, and I'm here to provide you with some blueprints of disruption. This weekly podcast is dedicated to amplifying the work of activists, examining power structures, and sharing the success stories from the grassroots. Through these discussions, we hope to provide folks with the tools and the inspiration they need to start to dismantle capitalism, decolonize our spaces, and bring about the political revolution that we know we need. For 75 years, Palestinians have been denied the most basic rights. They faced occupation, economic despair, displacement, and unrelenting violence, all at the hands of the Israeli state, an apartheid state backed by the United States war machine. Living in Canada, most of us can only imagine what kind of impact all of that would have on us and our communities. I received a message almost a month ago now from a comrade who had experienced occupation and also a war for liberation. At the time, we were in the throes of people's immediate reaction to October 7th and trying to make sense of it all. He calmly explained that... Settlers, growing up inside a colonial estate, immersed in its ideology, could not possibly understand what a war for liberation looks like. We could sit and imagine what we would do in the face of erasure, of genocide, but we can't know for sure. And we can't just sit removed and pretend to understand. Right now, our thoughts surely go to Palestine, but they're not even the only peoples fighting for existence right now. And unfortunately, history is full of examples of peoples being treated this way and having to resist oppressive and powerful forces. Canada's own history is no exception. When we look into these moments, we see the imperialists rinse and repeat using the same tactics against rebels and revolutionaries over and over again. Well, we too must learn from them, from the experiences of those who've done the work before us and who have seen victory. The Irish are an example of that. In a global response largely void of courage, the Irish have stood in solidarity with the people of Palestine for some time, not just since October 7th. This is because they too know all too well what it's like to be vilified for fighting for freedom. They know what it's like to stand alone on that world stage demanding recognition. Most importantly for this discussion, they know what it's like being forced into taking up arms when all other peaceful forms of resistance have been beaten back. Like Palestine, even their flag, the tricolor green, white, and orange, was banned in attempts to silence and delegitimize them. But it didn't work. The resistance was focused organized, and determined. It was also violent. In the end, they brought the British Empire to their knees, and they continued to resist. So next up, we're going to talk to someone who wasn't just there during the troubles of the early 1970s, the hunger strikes, and the peace accords. He was pivotal. I'll let Danny give you his credentials, but he is certainly a wealth of knowledge on the history of the people's struggle in Northern Ireland. As a spokesperson and a writer, he also has a lot to say on the attempts to label and demonize resistance movements and what our collective and individual responses to that should be. Welcome from Belfast. Can you introduce yourself, Danny? Okay, well, my name is Danny Morrison. I'm uh, 
almost 71 years of age. I have been uh, a member of the Republican struggle for oh, many, many years, maybe 50, 60 years, if I uh, was to think back to the first protest that I was on. I'm also a former prisoner. I've been charged twice with membership of the Irish Republican Army, the IRA, and on both occasions I defeated the charges. I was also sentenced to eight years for uh, conspiring to kill a police informer and kidnapping him. And I served my sentence and then later a British Army intelligence officer wrote a book showing that I had been set up by British intelligence. I sued the British government successfully and had the, the uh, conviction quashed. I've also been a member of the Le Legislative Assembly up at Stormont. I was elected there from 82 to 86. I've been the National Director of Publicity for Sinn Féin for 11 years until that arrest when I was charged with kidnapping an informer. And uh, I was also editor of Republican News, uh, the Sinn Féin weekly paper, uh, for many, many years as well. Oh, and currently I'm a writer and editor at the moment. Yes, I've written uh, eight books and I've edited many, many books. Uh, one book that I was honoured to edit was called A Shared Struggle. And that was a book where uh, surviving hunger strikers from the Palestinian cause and from the Irish Republican cause wrote about their experiences. Wow, that's a lot to unpack. I feel, Danny, we could sit here for eight hours asking you about the litany of things you've just mentioned, you know, right down from your very first protest to the written work that you've done. But I'm glad you ended on that that comparison, that tie, because that is, although we would have loved to talk to you any day of the week, we feel a conversation with you right now would help folks listening better understand that Palestinian resistance from the perspective of someone who, as you say, has fought as a Republican nationalist for 50, 60 years. Well, I mean, I was first in prison. I was interned without charge or trial. Uh, and, and incidentally, the legacy of that policy of internment uh, has been used by Israel. It's called administrative detention. But we have we had exactly the same process here, where for five years, uh, over two and a half thousand people were interned overall. I, I, was, I was 19 when I was uh, interned back in Long Cash and in prison. I met many, many people who traveled the world, particularly, for example, merchant seamen. And some of them, you know, had doctored, for example, in Cape Town, um, were telling us about what apartheid was like. And first time I ever heard of that, the name of that whip, the Shambok, was by a prisoner who saw black people being beaten by uh, racist white police in South Africa. So in the prison where we had political status, of course, uh, I mean, we read about the Mexican Revolution, the Russian Revolution, Algeria. Vietnam was ongoing at that point in time. Uh, and the Palestinian struggle, like I remember the, the what was called, I don't know where it's the correct political term, but back at, back then it was called the Yom Kippur War. I was in prison then in October 73 when that happened. And then, of course, two months before that, Allende was overthrown by a CIA uh, intervention uh, in Chile. So... We were we were highly politicised, and it was from a very very young age that we were aware that what was wrong in our society was uh, British imperialism, uh, settler colonialism. The, as it turned out historically, when the English first attempted eight hundred years ago, 
when the English first attempted to control Ireland and occupy Ireland and control our resources and use the trees to build their ships, which built their empire, the strongest resistance came from what was called Ulster. There are four provinces in Ireland and Ulster is in the north. And there the people fought the hardest, the native Irish fought the toughest. And it was there that the uh, English decided to dispossess the local people and give the land to their soldiers, uh, some of whom were from Scotland, and, the, and because of the Reformation, up, you know, up until the up until the 16th century, Scotland, England, and Wales were Catholic countries. But as a result of the Henry VIII Reformation, we now had the settlers now not only were distinguished by the fact that they were from a foreign country and didn't speak our native tongue Irish, but they were also a different religion on this occasion: Scottish Presbyterian. English Anglicans, and for example, they changed the name of places. So Derry became London Derry, uh, which we a term which we refused to use, of course. And they controlled. Uh, they were able to put down a substantial Irish uprising as a result of the plantation. So we're still living today with the effects of that. Now, interestingly, some of the original uh, planters, for want of a better word. Uh, some of the original planters were very much influenced by the French Revolution and the American Revolution of 1776 and the whole Enlightenment process and the writings of Tom Paine. And one of these people was a Protestant, a Dublin lawyer, barrister, uh, called Theobald Wolfe And he set up a new organisation called the United Irishmen. And this was interesting because his, his point was to unite everybody who is in Ireland regardless of where your origins were. So if you can sink your identity in unity, and he, he purposefully uh, advocated the, the unity of Catholics, Protestants, and dissenters. Uh, there was a large uprising in 1788, which was brutally suppressed. But that's where, we, that's where I get my Irish republicanism from, from Wolfe Tone and those ideas of the French Revolution, equality, liberty. And that has lived on to, uh, to this day. That's why we don't like monarchy. We like, uh, we like the, the people being in charge of their, of their own affairs. See, as a Canadian, I, I struggle. I want to keep asking you still, how were they so politicized? Because from a Canadian perspective, a real kind of settler mentality. And quite often, all of us recognize that we're somewhat powerless, we're within systems that don't work with us. You know, we understand things aren't fair and they're not right. But there's so much punching down and punching across and not directed at capitalism, the powers that be as clearly as it seems to be as you're speaking and you're talking about all these influences. And I feel like I'm like, where are these? Like, how how did that really like in school? Did you learn about all these revolutions? Was that how you spoke to one another? Because not everyone was interned in prison and had like these discussions. Right. So no, but every every member of my community was a member of a community that knew a grave, a grave injustice had been committed against them. So, for example, uh, in in the run-up, you see, our struggle has always been binary in a way. So uh, there was a, there were laws called there were laws uh, the penal laws were against the Catholic the vast majority of people in Ireland. So they weren't allowed to own a horse. They weren't allowed to own property. Uh, the Catholic religion was banned. 
priests had to say mass on the side of hillsides, posting out people in case the yeomanry or the soldiers came. Now, as that was slowly relaxed over the 19th century, and as middle-class Catholics got the vote, uh, a lot of people felt that perhaps through peaceful constitutional means you could bring about change, you could have devolution. It was just The idea they were talking about was just a parliament under the English crown, but for all of Ireland. And it looked like they were going to be successful uh, right on up until the eve of the First World War. So we had a constitutional movement calling for home rule, that is a parliament in Dublin, but under the British crown. And the, 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 the original, the, the descendants of the original planters opposed this, and they called themselves the Ulster Unionists. And they threatened civil war if there was home rule for Ireland. So they were anti-democratic. They had no problem, by the way, with running Ireland as long as they were in control. But as that slowly slipped away from them, they thought in terms of the north of Ireland. And of course, Ulster consists of nine counties, but ultimately the Unionists settled for six counties. So my my grandparents, you know, who were born in the United Ireland, born in Belfast in the United Ireland, in 1920-21, they suddenly found themselves in a partition country where all power had been handed to one section of the community, the Unionists, who were extremely loyal to Britain. And uh, the, the first thing that the Unionists did was to try to attack the Catholic community in Belfast. So thousands of people were driven from their jobs. My grandparents twice were driven from their home. Uh, even though Catholics made up, Irish nationalist Catholics made up only a quarter of the percentage of the people in Belfast City, during the pogroms, they made up the vast majority of those who lost their lives or who were burnt out of their homes. So we had a state here, which was one party state. And even though the British government, whenever they set up the state of Northern Ireland, said that there would be safeguards for the nationalist minority. One day we were a majority in our own country, and then the next day we were a minority in our own country. As Britain, as Britain allowed the south of Ireland slowly but surely to break away, and of course they announced, declared the Republic of Ireland in 1948-1949, but we were still trapped in this northern state. So we were politicised, we were always politicised. So we knew, for example, that uh, if you go to the border, I mean, a farmer will own two fields and one will be in the north and one will be in the south, but especially during the British occupation, during our most recent conflict, British Army would blow up roads, blow up bridges, blow up hundreds of roads and hundreds of bridges and funnel all, all the population that was travelling between the north and the south in between a, a certain limited number of roads which they controlled with military checkpoints. So even though we were a minority, we suffered discrimination. So you, you're familiar with the term gerrymander, Jessa? Yep. No. Okay. Well, there was a governor in Massachusetts who deliberately drew up his constituency. Oh, gerrymander. Gerrymander, yes. yes Sorry. Yes. So That's we, your had, we had a similar situation here where in Derry City, where two-thirds of the people were nationalists, the, they carved up the constituency in such a way that the minority unionists ran the council, decided where houses were built, decided where the jobs were based. So even though we made up a third of the population in the north, we made up two-thirds of those who immigrated. And then by this means, the unionists thought they would have control in perpetuity. 
following the example of the black civil rights movement in uh, the USA, we set up a civil rights association and uh, it was also based on the students' movement in May 68 across Europe. Anti-Vietnam, we, we followed that very closely. So we had a big protest movement and that was brutally suppressed. And the final, the final, uh, the most decisive moment came in August 1969. I was 16 at the time and we were protesting down the Falls Road. And just after I, I, I had left for home, the police, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, the government's police, invaded our area, opened fire with machine guns, burnt hundreds of people out of their homes, and we built barricades. And it was from behind the barricades that the IRA was rebuilt. Now, its original purpose was just to defend the people, but as raids continued, including famously the Falls Curfew, when they surrounded, you know, 40,000 people, hived them into their homes, gassed them from helicopters, shot dead people, wounded people, arrested, you know, 300 people, most of them 16, 17 years of age. That that led the IRA to start, a, 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 a to renew its campaign. And its argument was that we're not going to get our civil rights until we get our national rights. And the only way we're going to get our national rights is by challenging British rule in the north of Ireland. And then that led to the long war. So, I mean... Anybody listening can see the parallels between that experience and what the people of Gaza are experiencing in terms of division, delegitimizing any political means, and the economic and social conditions then that are created there. I want to go back to that politicizing because now I'm starting to understand you say politicized and you mean it, but you also mean fucking terrorized and no representation, right? A lack of democracy. So for me, I guess I thought in politicized meant exposure to ideas, but I should have known better because I have been taught this before. It's just not something I've experienced. And that's kind of what I want to help people understand is that that perpetual oppressive force that's pushing down and people's natural reaction to it. And it's not as calculated as the political maneuvering that, that I think of, right? When I think of being politicized, it's, it's really just kind of the human reaction of being denied a voice and a space and safety and, um, that really did help me understand that a little bit better. So a lot of folks, they understand liberation and realizing rights and support Palestinian freedom, but they don't, they're having trouble grappling with the armed resistance part of it. Right. And I think you've, you've kind of laid out, Danny spoke of the barricades to protect the nationalists in neighborhoods that were consistently being attacked, not just by the state, right. But also by, Civilians. Well, I, I, there's a couple of things. Is that uh, first of all, I think that the nature of resistance is directly proportional, often, to the degree of oppression, and uh, we have not experienced that depth, that cruelty of oppression that uh, Palestine has experienced successfully, successfully, successively since 1948 
and even before that. But the parallels between Ireland and Palestine, you know, are much closer than what I've, I've intimated. So, for example, uh, our our own movements here for home rule uh, in the night, just prior to the First World War, split. So we had constitutional leaders, a man called John Redmond, and Britain said to him, if you fight for us in the First World War, we will give you home rule at the end of it. And so he sent as many as between 35 and 55,000 people died from Ireland, fighting for Britain, thinking at the end of it they were going to get home rule. And of course, Britain reneged on that. Similarly, the Palestinians were promised, if you fight for us against the Ottoman Empire, at the end of it, you will get self-determination. And that, and they said the same to India, who supplied thousands of people, cannon fodder. And they said the same thing to indigenous people in, in Canada. I'm thinking of the War of 1812 as an example, where similar promises were made, treaties were drawn up that were then later ignored and they didn't get the land that they were promised. It's uh, quite the pattern. Well, it was Lord Lord Balfour, famously. He hands the Middle East to uh, Zanis. What right is he? To, that'd be like me turning around and saying that, uh, by the way, I'm giving Hawaii to somebody. You know, it's just, it's so ridiculous. But also, of course, the people who were involved in attacking our resistance struggle uh, at the time when the IRA did call out uh, called a truce and a ceasefire in 1920-21 and of course the negotiations did not go the way they should have went and Ireland was divided and the that that the, the differences that existed inside the republican struggle led to a civil war in the south of Ireland and governments that were friendly towards Britain installed where have we heard that before you know a, a, you know, a government that's very friendly with the, with the collaboration forces. I mean, the south of Ireland never lifted a finger for us in the north. But not only that, but then the the uh, black and tans who had been who had been who burnt down Cork, burnt down Balbriggan. They, whenever they leave the twenty six counties, where are they sent to Palestine. And of course, you have the whole British involvement right up until uh, nineteen forty eight, when Israel is recognised by. The, the UN. So there are many, many uh, parallels. That, and what, when you mentioned, it's very interesting that you mentioned Native, uh, Native Americans, uh, Native Indians, because, I mean, if you read uh, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, I think it's by uh, David Lee, I can't remember his name, what we are seeing today in Palestine is exactly the same. Every agreement that was reached is torn up, thrown in their faces. Well, now, back then, the world internationally had no means of modern communication to see the genocide of the Native Americans. Today we can. And what is really interesting, what is really, really revealing, is that all these so-called democratic governments, all these so-called enlightened people, like the President of the European Union, you scratch them. Underneath, they are, in my opinion, incriminated in genocide. They support Israel. Israel is a beachhead for American imperialism in that part of the land. You don't even have to take my word for it. 
the president of the United States. There's a video of him saying that if saying that if Israel didn't exist, we would have to invent it, and it was worth spending all of this money because they controlled the complexion of many of the other states around that area, and that is the that is the real reason. So, you know, I think there's no such thing as Western civilization. I think the European Union has to be rewritten, given the way they have behaved. And of course, the Sinn Féin uh, currently, in opinion polls, and in the last election in the South, received more votes than any other party. We're the largest party in the north of Ireland, and in all likelihood, Sinn Féin will be in government, the lead party in government, if it is a coalition government, within the next 18 months, and Sinn Féin has pledged. One of the first things it's doing is to issue public recognition of a Palestinian state, which will hopefully free up other sound political organisations and parties in Europe to act in a similar fashion, and also to make law legislation, which has already been passed, but has the, the, the coalition government in, in Dublin has refused to enact it in law, is to ban uh, products produced by Israeli settlers and uh, to, to basically it's to support the BDS, but officially from a governmental position. So that's that's the next move when Sinn Féin gets into power in the south of Ireland. And of course, already is, Israel is going crazy about this, and you know has condemned Ireland as being you know the worst in Europe. Uh, you know, and they and they use all the language of the day, emotional language meant to break you, meant to think that oh, you know, have I am I am I a, a collaborator here? You know, with with Holocaust nonsense. I mean, the, what they are doing, and what the Germans did to the Warsaw Ghetto, stops and parallels with. And yet, for some reason, they don't see it, or they do see it, and they don't care, and they will trade on the memory of the dead in order to preserve their privileged position in twenty twenty three onwards. I imagine that's so old news for you, being attacked by you know, imperialist propaganda machines and anybody looking at the history of Northern Ireland from a really removed perspective. And I imagine a little bit while you're in the thick of it is that the violence was always one-sided and we're seeing that's a parallel that surely we can recognize here where the violence is reported to have started on October 7th because that is a really comfortable framing that allows for that terrorism label that I'm sure you've experienced and that that framing of where state violence is the only legitimate violence, but it's also the easiest forgotten violence. You know, if you talk to people, you know, I'm going to I'm going to out my mom here a little bit. I told her, I'm like, I've got Danny Morrison coming on the show. We're going to talk about the IRA. And, you know, she was a little, she clutched her pearls a little. She doesn't wear pearls, but you know what I'm talking about. And she goes, ooh, you know, they were very violent, weren't they? And so that's how people, they don't remember what you described at the onset of the show of the open state violence, like from hel- gassing from helicopters is how you described it and, and we we could go on. I'm sure you have lists of atrocities committed by British troops and black and tans. As far as the, the state is concerned and the mainstream media is concerned, they all take their cue from the British government. So when the British government, for example, changes its language, for example, I was interned in Long Cash. And the word Long Cash around the world uh, was so pejorative and associated with 
cruelty and beating of prisoners and hunger strikes and prisoners shot trying to escape, that the British government changed its name to the Mays Prison. It changed Blancash to the Mays Prison, and all the media adopted that terminology. So the media and the British government, the violence begins when the IRA fires its first shot. And all that preceded it, the cruelty, the people burnt out of their houses. You know, the first child to be killed in our, in our conflict was nine-year-old Patrick Rooney. Nine-year-old, shot dead, machine gunned to death by the RUC in his bed. The first soldier to be killed was a Catholic home on leave, Trooper Hugh McCabe. The RUC, Nobody's that in, is British the RUC, police? Armed police, yes. Shot dead, these people. Nobody was arrested. Nobody was charged. After a civil rights march in Derry, the RUC broke into the house of Sammy Devaney, a father of eight, beat him to death in front of his children. Nobody's arrested. That's not violence. That's unfortunate, you know. But the violence begins when the IRA decides we've had enough, we're going to start fighting. Now, if all wars are horrible affairs, I mean, the IRA uh, was involved in, in order to try and pull the British Army away from our areas, which were heavily militarised. The IRA planted bombs in the centre of the town. It planted bombs uh, against government buildings, against civil service buildings. It then planted bombs against commercial property. And the British government had to uh, pay massive compensation towards the, all these buildings. So the IRA was saying, you can't defend this area. Uh, British government, the British army says we can't defend the area. So, but during that campaign, yes, people were killed, innocent people were killed by the IRA. There was un some unconscionable things happened, but there was a lot of things that didn't happen. So, for example, the IRA could have easily planted no warning bombs in the London Underground if it if it meant you know uh, getting publicity etc. But it didn't do it. So the IRA was circumscribed by certain values as well. And as I said in some of my opening comments, you know, there was a certain amount of proportionality. Similarly, the RAF couldn't bomb our Sinn Féin offices on the Falls Road after the IRA killed several soldiers. Because that would have been, we were, we were unlike uh, Palestine, we were unique in that our conflict was happening in the society of, with uh, in which there was aspects of social democracy. Uh, we were in Western Europe. We were white. You were seen as more legitimate in a political realm. Well, the British, British government, the British embassy in Washington went to war with the New York Times, which, by the way, of course, we know was no friend of Palestine. But the New York Times refused to call the IRA terrorists, called the IRA guerrillas, and the British ambassadors say, yeah, they're, they're terrorists, they're terrorists. So all these minor little fights and skirmishes go on around the edges. But the fact of the matter is, at the end of our struggle, the British government was talking to the IRA. All of our prisoners were released. My brother, who was serving 26 years, was released. Pat Sheehan, longest man on hunger strike, and who's in that book, A Shared Struggle. Pat Sheehan uh, was released. Hundreds were released. A lot of the people who released, and then went on to become uh, elected representatives. Jerry Kelly, who escaped from the hate blocks, became a junior minister under Martin McGuinness. Uh, Carolyn Killen, a woman who was caught attacking an RUC barracks, British Army barracks. She became minister of arts and culture. So... It's quite obvious that the British government knew all along that our struggle was political. And it was until, it was when the IRA broke them and created a tipping point. Now, we weren't able to get 
everything we wanted at the negotiating table. We still have the British. We still have the British connection here, which we which we will break eventually. But we have a peaceful path and a peaceful means of doing it, which was denied the Palestinian people. Every time there was any deal entered into, Israel reneged on it. It always pocketed any cons. It pocketed everything. You know, even when Yasser Arafat entered into the Oslo Accords, it pocketed those and it kept building settlements, building settlements because it wants to create facts on the ground. So, because it wants to renege, it wants to ensure there's no viable Palestinian uh, state. And we see them, and they're going to have to be confronted. But it's a, we have a tough battle ahead of us. But I do think things have been transformed. You know, appalling, appalling death, horrific deaths of men, women and, and, and children. But something has to change. And I think I've never, I've been around a long time and I have never seen marches with the type of people on them since Vietnam, since 69, 70, 71. Uh, now, we've had large marches during the hunger strike, particularly in 1981, when Bobby Sands and his comrades died. But these are huge marches. These are unprecedented marches. And on every march, people, I'm not sure if you agree with my word, are becoming politicised. So they are. And they, they take an interest and they're going to be hard to shift. So that, that's going to work its way out through where finance goes, our attitude towards, they're not going to be able to knock the BDS campaign after this. They're not going to be able to turn around and say, oh, you're, that's anti-Zionist, oh, the Holocaust. They're not going to be able to do it. They've lost that one. But we are experiencing that in Canada. I'm going to give you just a couple of examples because our audience has heard it. You know, legitimate boycott targets like Indigo Books, where their founders are, you know, massive Zionism uh, Zionist supporters, you know, they have all kinds of foundations to recruit IDF soldiers. And I mean, it's it's very obvious that it's an Israeli boycott and even, you know, uh, a local ca a cafe franchise where their headquarters are in occupied territories and they proudly support Zionism. Even we have our mayor of Toronto calling those anti-Semitic protests and enlisting the police in framing it as criminal. We've seen uh, organizer in Calgary, although the charges were stayed, charged with chanting from the river to the sea, uh, although that's not related to BDS. You know, we we aren't there yet. Like they really are still trying to frame all of that as anti-Semitic and, and shut it all down. But we persist. I And I hope you're right. I do agree with that is a form of politicization. I just feel like it's just too slow for us right now. But perhaps we are in a different gear because I don't want to wait until we're in the conditions that you described or the conditions that we see in Gaza. Like we need our people to get there sooner not like in an armed resistance, but in that frame of mind where we stand together, regardless of the differences that, you know, we can spot and be focused. I, I want to read one of the quotes that I found in your writing. And I've just been purging through your writing, so I, I can't even remember where I found this. But you say like... I can't remember writing it either. <laughs> well, it's okay. Well, I'm going to read it, and you're going to have to explain it anyway. <laughs> but, you know, I think you already kind of have, but let's, let's go into it. Uh, when a people finds itself in subjugation, oppressed and dispossessed, that is facing a permanent threat which has dispirited and demoralized them. 
the righteousness of their cause amounts to naught in the absence of leadership, organization, and strategy. You describe a, a victory. I know you say you didn't get everything you got, but you're still working towards that goal. The struggle has not ended. You know, revolutions are constant anyway. But I worry about Palestine. I want to I envision a free Palestine here. What does that organization, leadership, and strategy need to look like then? Like, and I, I you're kind of armchair quarterbacking. Is that a term you understand in Ireland? <laughs> yeah. Um, but how do we get there? How do they come out on the other side with self-determination? Because surely their struggle is righteous and they have lots of people behind them. But is it is it focused enough? Is it is it organized enough? Well, you know, the deep divisions within Palestinian organizations is exploited to the hilt by Israel and America. So, you know, that old phrase, divide and conquer, has been successfully pursued by at least, for at least 30, 33 years now. Uh, and from a human point of view, there are people in the West Bank who probably look at Gaza and say, we don't want that, uh, even though it's our people, you know, so let's not push it. And that, that in itself is an aid to Israel, unfortunately. So we need, we need Palestinian unity. Uh, and they need to strive for that. And you can see, for example, how even uh, Joe Biden, and, or maybe it was Netanyahu. Uh, I love how you can't tell the difference. Let's slip. I know both are warmongers. Uh, both are genocide supporters. Uh, they said, and they let this slip, we need a Palestinian authority in Gaza. Now, that's code for somebody whom we can run, somebody who will do our bidding. As you described uh, in the south of Ireland. Uh, south of Ireland, accepted partition, pretended that they were opposed to it, pretended they wanted it in Ireland. And what we had there was a, a, the build-up of a class that was comfortable. To the extent, by the way, and I wrote a book about this last year, to the extent that they call the 26 counties Ireland. So they talk about Ireland and Northern Ireland. You know, and it is a disgrace. But that aside, so in the case of the Palestinians, the the other unfortunate thing is, is that we need a revolution. We need uh, the people in in Egypt who already tried it and were suppressed, of course, by uh, an Amer who's an American puppet who won't let anybody cross at the Rafa crossing without Israel's permission. I mean, totally, totally craven, cowardly, disgraceful, and of course, uh, Syria civil war fomented by. The West, so they're in a weakened position. Lebanon, very, very weak economy. Again, You're like coloring in the whole map there, right? Like so the you, you, you look at it, you know, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, and people will have to look at this, every time Palestine, Palestine has risen up, it's lost more territory. It's, it's shrunk. Uh, but it, it is... It has massive support around the world. That support needs to be organized and focused. And we, you know, we need to put pressure on Israel. Now, the whole thorny question of 
if I was a Palestinian, if I was a Palestinian living in the West Bank or living in Gaza, would I recognize the right of Israel to exist? Right? That I can't. I can't answer that for them. I can look at it as a pragmatist from outside and say to myself, well, strategically, if I wanted to maximize what I would get, I would have to do certain things, which in the past have been unconscionable. Right? I, but it's not, it's not up for us to to uh, describe the roadmap for them. But certainly they have our support and our sympathy. We spot injustice. We spot the cruelty of it. We spot the hypocrisy of it and the immorality of it. And we are in ourselves, in our own societies, we have to challenge this. These people lead us, remember? These people you know, claim to run our destiny. So we have to challenge them because they have shown themselves, they have exposed themselves. So there's going to be multiple, multiple ripple effects from what has happened uh, in Palestine and particularly in Gaza. And we, as people who are in solidarity, as people who are, are in our own struggle, you know, because I, mean, I have a very simple philosophy and it's an attitude towards Sinn Féin getting into government in the South. And what I want to see is wealth moved from the top down to the bottom. I want a, a fair distribution of wealth. Uh, and I, I, that applies right across the board internationally. So all of these struggles are related to our struggles. The type of leaders that we have, when you scrape them, what are, they really expose themselves. They are vulgar. They are valid. They are immoral. They, they will ju justify starving, premature babies in incubators of oxygen. Now imagine that. I would never want to be associated with them. Any advice to folks on how we push back against, effectively push back against that giant PR machine that exists? Um, and so every kind of country is experiencing it in different levels, but... Well, you're going to have to be prepared to be demonized. But you have to develop a thick skin. And when they when they throw things at you, oh you're yeah oh you're a Holocaust in there or you're supporting that whatever they throw at you, just as long as you know in yourself, in your heart and in your soul, I am fighting here for a just cause. Let don't let them get have just bring up the arguments. No, you're not. You're not what they're saying you are, and you just have to keep fighting and struggling and find the energy and find the stamina. I mean, when I joined the Republican struggle. You know, I was told it was going to be over by Christmas. Right? And, <laughs> and here like, you are. Then 35, 40 years later, you know, you're still at it, but we're at it in a different way. And we're, we're fortunate we we're fortunate that we had good leaders. That we had we had leaders who were I mean, even Tony Tony Blair's uh lead advisor wrote a book and he described Martin McGinnis and Jerry Adams as superb negotiators. And they were trained. It was instinctive with them. They had been around a long time. They dealt with British leaders. I mean, Adams himself met uh, British for the first time in July 1972, 51 years ago. And he, they released, released him early for, from jail so that he could attend those, those talks. So yeah, leadership is very, very important. But, I mean, we all know what we're saying is right. It's not as if we've doubts about ourselves. So we just have to muster the energy and confront the people. I see on, I mean, I know it's a tiny, tiny point. See on Twitter, anybody, once I see any sign of Zionism or even if they're trying to be reasonable, I just block them because they're not going to come onto my platform, right, to, to, to try and undermine 
the argument of, of people who are suffering. No way, I don't have time for them. Uh, they'll go on and find their own platform. It's not censorship because I'm not stopping them, but I'm, I'm certainly not going to listen to them because I've heard enough of them and I know who they are and what they are. Once you have your resolve, like there's no doubting some people are listening to you, they're nodding their head, right? They're in it. They're ready to get attacked. But then how do we build to the critical mass without experiencing, without everyone experiencing those conditions of oppression that we've talked about not wanting to get to that state? So a lot of our difficulties are our neighbors, folks we know that know better, but they're not willing to step into that discomfort or perhaps they only read the mainstream news that is and so they're only absorbing one side of the story and because of that demonization that we're willing to take and slough off but it still sticks as a label for someone exterior to us and so how do you win that public opinion war that surely the Irish Republican army had to fight amongst their own people you know in terms of tactics used or well, IRA support went up and I mean, the IRA support went up and down, depending on things that they did. If, if supporters didn't approve of things, they let the IRA know. So, and that and that reflect the the nature of the struggle was also a reflection of the of the nature of the support. But there's times when people have to do things, uh, just make decisions. Like for example, the, the 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 men and women who went out and took over the GPO in Dublin in 1916. Just to say, there's no mandate, there's no electoral mandate. In fact, the party was the Irish Parliamentary Party, John Redmond's party, which was collaborating with the British and sending young Irishmen to the Somme and to Gallipoli. Uh, so there's times whenever leadership just has to be overriding. And it's in retrospect that we see the wisdom of, of, of their decisions. But, I mean, the, the depraving, depraving friends of Zionism of money because we know they love money. They love lucre. They love the dollar. They love the gold bar. So however small you're doing it, it's still hurting them. So if you can get five people to join in and not go to McDonald's because they were feeding the IDF before they stormed Gaza, giving them free meals, right? That's you're depriving them of capital. You're burnt. It kicks in at some place. It's hard to say. For example, even whenever the the boycott boycott campaign against apartheid, you know, when did it hit its critical mass? Uh, and it did. But there's examples throughout history, by the way, of people suddenly having change of minds. What do you call the governor who stood in front of the the black the young black girls trying to get into college? George Wallace. Do you remember? And then George Wallace, somebody tried to assassinate him and he ended up in a wheelchair and then he had a complete spiritual change of mind with regards to civil rights. So you don't know when you're going to reach that point, but you keep going and you keep going and you keep going and then suddenly you've broken through a wall. And it's amazing. And so when you look back, you see you see how much digging you did and you succeeded. So take heart. Take, the, the protests are extraordinary. Astonishing protests everywhere. We've been protesting in Belfast four four times a week. Huge. We were on a huge march on Saturday. Huge march in Manchester yesterday. There's going to be a huge march in Dublin next Saturday. So it's it's there and it's hurting them. You know it's hurting them because the way they're snapping. I mean, Biden's snapping. Biden's Biden's not going to win the election. Biden's lost the election. 
there is no, going to be a political just, fallout here as well in Canada. They need to. They need to. If they if they want to get, get elected at all, they need to get rid of him and put somebody else in who is untainted, and that'll be difficult enough because the Democrats have been funded and big friends of Zionism for a long time. Uh, although a lot of the younger people uh, in the Democratic Party are protesting and signing letters, which is good. Yeah, no, in Canada here, we lack a strong political left as well in terms of holding the line. So there's there's a lot of work here to do in terms of that. But I do draw a lot of heart from speaking to someone who's broken through the wall, you know, not single handedly like the way I'm framing it, but can look back. Because do you, do, you, do you recall do you, do you recall Tom Hayden? Tom Hayden. Tom Hayden, he was married to Jane Fonda. And both of them were involved in the anti the anti war movement. And uh, she had gone out to Hanoi in the middle of the war and the media dubbed her Hanoi Jane in order to demonize her. But Tom also Tom was involved in that you know, Chicago the Chicago Seven. He features in that. He was involved in that. But I remember him coming over here and he stayed with me in 1976. He and his son, Troy, who was about 14 months old, stayed with me and my wife. Um, we were walking around and I was pointing out what was happening in our areas. We had wee co-ops going this year. And he said to me, have you ever read Antonio Gramsci? He said, no. He says, read his prison stuff. I says, why? What's it? He says, Gramsci has this theory. I have a whole lot of people in society, you know, somebody's a plumber, somebody's a school teacher, somebody's a musician, somebody's a student. He says, if they all start thinking along the same lines and working towards the same purpose, they turn over society. This is a revolution. So this is what we need to do with all of those people out there and all of their different daily walks of life is to be unified on this subject. Palestine has to be given a home. End off. Now, I don't think we're in a position to frame it, to say the dimensions of it. I think we have to leave that up to the Palestinians, and I, and, uh, I hope they can maximise it. It'll also be determined by things like Saudi Arabia, which is in hock to the USA. You've got Yemen, which has just fought a war with Saudi Arabia, lobbing missiles to, towards Israeli uh, targets and to seize that boat uh, on on Sunday, etc. So you have all of these struggles going on. Now, what is wrong with saying Palestinians should be given their own homeland? Who can argue against that? And the ones who argue against that, you'll see them and you'll expose them. The Zionists will come up with excuses. Oh, Israel's, Israel has the right to defend itself. Oh, Israel, Israel has to be, have secure borders, etc. It's all nonsense. They're all liars. So they are. They're all making excuses because they support what's going on, what Israel is doing, and we need to expose them. So our demands, you know, there was a famous uh, Irish Republican Marxist leader from the 1916 rising, James Connolly, and he says, our demands are most modest. We only want the earth, you know, and we can, we have to have these, we want to change things for the better, for our children. And the, the demand for a Palestinian homeland is unassailable. They all play, I mean, Biden says, oh, we'll have, we'll have talks and all this here. So they're all saying it, but we must make them do it. And we must do it through pressure, through our pocket. Don't give them a cent.
make it hurt them, and it'll, it'll at the end, we'll come out the other end with a Palestine. I'm with you, Danny. I'm with you, Danny, because you know a leftist in Canada here. We're often searching for that unifying issue, right? Everyone's got different ideas on how to move forward and different priorities. But it's hard to argue the urgency of this at the moment. And you're right. It feels like that one almost litmus test for comrades. <laughs> you know, you're either with us or against us on this, and we need to know. Look at the hypocrisy. Look at the hypocrisy of the rhetoric over Ukraine. So we're looking into the, we're looking into the rights and wrongs of it, right? The fact of the matter is that they or voluble, totally amplifying, condemning a bomb going into a civilian area in Ukraine. And yet they don't have the same response to an Israeli bomb going into Palestine. And just keep hitting them with their contradictions and letting everybody know. Yeah, I feel like they would be happy if we forgot about Ukraine at the moment. I think that that the the hypocrisy that exists there is too great, and so we have found our media essentially just we are not talking about Ukraine at all anymore. Also, because our parliament invited a Ukrainian Nazi to the legislature, oh, yeah, and they all applauded them as though they didn't know who fought the uh, communists. It didn't matter as long as you were fighting communists, you were you were. You were well to be honored. So, yeah, the Canadian kind of political memory is as short as the rest of them. And we've we've moved on. <laughs> so but you're right, like the hypocrisies are never ending. And the more that we press them, the more absurd their responses get to the point where the Israeli Twitter account almost seems like a satire or something the onion would put together. So. You know, I'm starting to feel that that turning of the tide in terms of public opinion as well. And I, I do want to sit on that that thought from our last episode, um, talking about what a free Palestine would mean in the greater fight against imperialism, the the politicizing that that would have by proxy, you know, to the folks who took to the street in Belfast, in Toronto, in Barcelona, uh, although they don't maybe need the lessons that we need, but it would be great to experience a victory like that, that to see that it can be done uh, in our time, you know, and in that real, real time that we're getting, that we're able to experience what's happening in Gaza like, like no other world event, really. But Santiago, you've been so quiet. I know because I keep chirping up. I have so much to, to, to ask to draw to Danny there, but do you have anything? Um... No, I've just been mostly learning. Uh, uh, it's been, uh, there's a lot of new information for me uh, that I, so I've been happy to to sit back and learn. And it, I mean, it's the one thing I notice a lot is just the, the parallels to a lot of struggles around the world, right? Myself, um, I'm uh, Colombian and I was thinking about as as we we're talking, I was thinking about um, Israeli imperialism in Latin America, which is something that people don't know as much about. But there was Israeli funding of right wing paramilitary groups, the Mossad trained death squads in countries like El Salvador. They were heavily involved in Central and South America 
through a variety of overthrows of governments and right-wing coups. And what it really, like, the reason I bring this up is because it shows, like, how connected all of these things are to, like, a greater imperialist movement that links here in Canada, in the UK, in Israel, and affects so much of the oppressed peoples around the world. And it's it's all connected, and it's part of the reason why so many people have been able to look at the struggle in in Palestine and find, you know, those similarities and relate to what's happening. And uh, um, yeah, don't know where to go from that, but I'm happy to keep. Well, listening. we just have to be determined to keep going, and <clears throat> one day you break through, uh, you know, and you. We have to exhaust them, and we can't exhaust them. So that means an awful lot of energy we have to invest in this struggle. Uh, even small things like you, you write ten letters to the newspaper and they don't publish it, and then you get you get one letter published. You know, and somebody who hasn't heard your view or opinion before is suddenly you know uh, can view, can see it and can say, oh, there's I never knew that there. You know that, that that's a new fact for me. So it's just non-stop. It's a part of the grind, and you know we're lucky too because we have a great we have a great uh, tradition of, of rebel musicians as well. You know rebel songs. Rebel songs is such a big one. One of our rebel songs, by the way, like has made international news. And I'm not sure if you ever heard of a group called the Wolf Tones, but the Wolf Tones wrote this song, and part of the part of the the, the chorus goes. Ooh-ah, up the Ra, where the Ra stands for the IRA. And they've sang it at concerts, and thousands of people have sang it, and the establishment goes, there's been editorials written about it, you know, because it's young people don't know what they're supporting the IRA, and they don't know they're supporting the IRA, and they don't know what the IRA did. This is despite the fact that they spend every week telling them what the IRA did <laughs> 30 years ago, you know? So, I mean, there's all these little battles that can be won, and there's all there's pluses along the way, and every plus we just moves us along to the next stage. So I would just say, keep the chin up, and keep marching, and keep fighting, and keep struggling, and keep articulating until we break them. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.